that we need to have our minds blown out a little bit about who God is. We need to quit thinking that we know everything about God, put him in a neat little box, have everything organized. Oh, and we're going to have our God that we can pull off our shelf and then we want to do Bible study and then when we're ready to go out, we put him back on the shelf. That's not the God you serve. That God actually isn't available. What you serve is a God that is so far beyond anything you can imagine. And sometimes God's going to do weird stuff. I know that for many of us, especially here in a pretty conservative church, we tend to be a little bit more reserved. Now, I'm not reserved, but for some reason, everyone else seems to be reserved. I don't understand why that is. And in that reservation, sometimes we think that God is reserved. I was sharing uh, last night that one of my favorite quotes, and then I butchered it, uh, one of my favorite quotes was from a uh, C.S. Lewis novel um, in the Narnia series. If you remember, the first one's called Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in there, there's a Christ figure. He's a huge lion by the name of Aslan. Now, there's some four kids that go into this magical world, and they can't wait to see this Aslan character. But the little girl begins to get nervous. And they, as they're walking through, they meet a family of beavers. Right? I, I know this just sounds weird, right? And it is weird. And the, the, the beavers start talking to him. Well, she has a question. She says, so this Aslan, well, he's, he's a big lion, so he's tame. He's safe, right? And the beaver said, Lord, no, he's not safe. Nobody's good. I want that to resonate in your soul. No, he's not safe. No, he's not tame. This is the grand master of the universe. This is the all-powerful, almighty God who can rock your world and change everything. In one day, he can take you from what everything you think you know and move it into something absolutely bizarre and different. And yet we sit back and try to be so analytical. At some point, God may brush up against you. And you begin to realize the miraculous is possible. As a matter of fact, if you're sitting in this church today, there's a grand possibility that you're banking your eternal life on that fact. Amen? Amen. Would you grab your Bibles with me? Let's get into Bible study. Now, take your Bibles out. If you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll have the team bring one to you. Um, I'll give you the page number on where to turn to. We're going to be jumping around in the Bible a little bit today. And instead of beginning in the book of Revelation, we're going to begin with a little bit of background material. But I also need you to take out your handout sheet and see where we're going to go today. I entitled part 11 of our Revelation series today, Writers on the Storm. Anybody familiar with that song? <laughs> we got the four horsemen today, the four horsemen of the apocalypse we're going to be watching the Lamb, Jesus Christ, break the seven seals after two weeks in the throne room, seeing Him high and exalted, seeing the living creatures fall down before Him in worship, seeing the angels innumerable fall down, seeing all of creation sing His praise. He is now about to bring about the fulfillment of all of history, to bring about the plan of redemption, to close up this world and reign supreme. 
And he begins so by snapping out seven seals off a scroll. Now, if you missed any part of the series and you go, gosh, I'm already lost. Honestly, even if you get the other parts, you're still going to be lost. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. If you're lost, you're in good company. However, it may be helpful to get some of those podcasts. Now, as we begin, I would like for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 21. We got a gospel this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke is the third gospel. Uh, It's in the New Testament. In case you need the page number, it is 745. 745, Luke chapter 21, verse 5. And I just want to read a little bit through here because when Jesus began to talk about the end of the world and he began to talk about things like the destruction of the temple, the disciples assumed he was talking about the same incident and it really bothered them. They really wanted to know, so when is it going to happen? Lord, when are you going to destroy the temple? When are you going to come back? When are you going to set up your kingdom? They thought that was one question. It was actually two. As we know that in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And all those stones that were so magnificent they had looked at were all torn apart. That did occur in AD 70, but Jesus did not return. He has not returned yet. Therefore, we know that it's at least two questions. So let's just read through this a little bit. It says some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, Jesus is referring to A.D. 70. However, they have a different question. Teacher, they said, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are about to take place? And he replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and that the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and those in the country not enter. For this is a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be a great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars and on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. 
when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Man, that's dramatic, yeah? That's powerful. Let's pray for this morning. Heavenly Father, as we take a walk into Revelation once again and we try to examine the beginnings of chapter 6, Lord, we're not going to get all this. I understand that you are so far beyond and it's not for us to know all the details and the hour and the moment of your return. But I do pray, Lord, that you would give us insight and wisdom that we would glean out of it what you want us to take home. For, Lord, we must be changed people. We must love you more. We must love people more. We've got to be more like you. Would you allow us to see you a little clearer today that we might worship you more rightly? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now turn with me to Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. It's the last book in the Bible. It's page 870. And we will see what we have There's a fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. If you want to grab that, slide that over. Let me give you kind of the essence of something that I believe that both Christ and John wanted us to take home because we're about to read a lot of bad stuff. We're about to read about world leaders that come in and wars and famines and pestilences and we see these horsemen riding about causing destruction and Sometimes when we begin to read that stuff, we get a little bit nervous as if things are out of control or if somehow someone has something over on us or that a king or that someone else is really in control. We must make no mistake. Chapter 6 comes after chapters 4 and 5. 4 and 5 remind us that the Lamb is on the throne. That will not change. Therefore, the fill in the blank in front of you and what I believe we need to lock in our minds as we read this stuff is this. Local leadership. I don't care whether it's a horseman, whether it's a king, whether it's a ruler. Local leadership does not change the lamb's position as being on the throne. Local leadership, no matter who is president, no matter who is king, does not change who God is, where he is at, or the events of the future. We are securely in the hands of the king, and that king is Jesus Christ, right? So, as we move forward and read about these crazy things and this activity that's going to move through, and you begin to realize the white horse and the black horse and the red horse, and there's bloodshed and all this, the lamb is still on the throne. As a matter of fact, they only ride... Because he allows them to ride. That we must make sure of in our minds. Let's look at Revelation chapter 6. What I'm going to do is just read through the chapter, even though we're only studying the first eight verses today. But I want to kind of get a context because we have to figure out, as the Lamb breaks these seals, we need to figure out where they fit in the timeline. Are they all at the beginning? Is this all in chronological order? Or is he breaking them and nothing happens until chapter 8? Because it all depends on where the seals are on the scroll. We'll talk about all that. But when we look at these things, we've got to figure out maybe where they could fit and what they might be. So let's take a look at chapter 6. I watched, John said, as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. 
Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now those are the four horsemen. What happens next? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as the late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now you can see we only have six seals opened. And it was mentioned that there were seven as you read through, God then marks out some witnesses and then the seventh is broken open. When the seventh seal is broken open, it brings out seven angels with seven trumpets. With each trumpet, there is a judgment. After that comes seven bowls of wrath. Now, so what are these seals? Do these all happen in order? Well, we actually have two options on what these seals are. And the two major options, there's a lot of options, but these are the two that we're going to kind of run with. Both are legit. Both have absolute validity. When Jesus talked about the end of the world, he said that there was going to be wars and rumors of wars and there will be famines and there will be this, but the end is not yet. These are merely birth pains. Do you remember that? So when we see the horsemen, when we see these seals, where do they fit? Are they all up front? Are the four horsemen the birth pains? Meaning the end is not yet, but this is kind of how history is gone. There has been war and conquest. There has been bloodshed. There has been famine. And they're going to get succeedingly worse until the end. And so we are not truly at the end yet. That's one legitimate view. A lot of support for that. Or... It's the first horseman that rides out the Antichrist and from him ends up being war and famine and death 
And truly, we are talking about the great tribulation. That, too, is a legitimate view. When I look at those seven seals, here's what I see. I see that even though we see these four horsemen, and then all of a sudden it talks about those that are under the altar in heaven, these martyrs. They are told to wait. The rest of them die. But by the time we get to the seventh seal, even the sixth seal, we begin to see the day of the Lord stuff happen. The sky is rolling up. The moon's turning one color. The sun's turning another color. That sounds like the end to me. I would suggest to you, and you don't have to agree with me, but I believe that as these are laid out, this is kind of one view of the end, the total end, that they are representative of all the way through, and that they run concurrently or at the same time as some of the trumpets, some of the bowls. I think they overlap, is what I'm telling you. Because by the seventh seal, we have all the martyrs that have been killed in all the tribulations. So how in the world can those seven seals only be at the front? They can't be. People have to die through the tribulation. So obviously, it has to extend out. So what do we do with this? Well, let's go back and tear it apart and see if we can't find anything that will help us out. Here we go. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1 that we just read. Let's see what it has. John says, I watched as the Lamb, and we know that that is who? Jesus Christ. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Now remember two weeks ago, I bored you out of your mind talking about this scroll. You guys remember this? The scroll, where is it sealed? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, there's a reason why I took time to do that. Because it has to do with how you read from here on out. Because, remember I told you there was two ways that you could seal a scroll. The most common way was when you roll up a scroll, on the end you seal it with seven seals. In other words, you can't read anything until what? You break all seven. Then you can open it up and read it and something would happen. Other people argued and said, no, you could write a little bit, roll it up, seal that part, write a little bit more, roll it a little bit further, seal that part, and roll a little further all the way until seven are done. Now you understand why we took so much time on that. Because if these seals are all on the outside of the scroll, then none of this stuff occurs until all seven are broken. All the horsemen, they're all waiting. None of this is actually happening. There's no chronology to it. They're all waiting for one big hit at the end. Or, if it's being broken one by one, we have a bit of an order to it. Conquest leads to war. War leads to bloodshed. Bloodshed, oh, you see what I'm saying? Leads to famine and that leads to death. So we can go on through some type of chronology, but it depends on the scroll. Ah, Though many would argue that nothing, in a sense, occurs till chapter 8, I would disagree. I would be the one that would venture to say, these things are moving in some type of order, even though they overlap. That's going to be my take. So, who is this first horseman? Starts out, I watched as a lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, wait, who's this guy? You guys remember back when we studied these weird, unusual creatures? Remember what they look like? How many wings did they have? Anyone remember? Six. Six wings covered with eyes all over their body, and there was four of them. They were hovered around the throne. 
They were like a cross between a seraphim and a cherubim. You have these weird, hybrid, bizarre-looking creatures, and each one had a different face, and they were set in order. The first one had the face of a lion. The second one had the face of what? An oxen. The third one had the face of a man. The fourth one had the face of an eagle. And you go, ooh, are they symbolic? Are they, um, they're clearly symbolic. But what do they mean? What's interesting is we now have that first being, that first living creature, the one with a lion face, seems to kick us off here. It says, the first of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, and thunder means it's godlike. Come. Now he shouts out a one simple order, come. I assumed he's talking to the horse guy, right? Because he says, come, and then the horse rides out. I had no idea when I went back to study all the commentaries I studied that everyone argues about this. It's like, come on, really? Are we arguing about everything? Well, I found out there's three different people he could be calling to. I'm like, what do you mean? First one, calling to John, because some of the ancient... Uh, writings on this, they were reading some bad manuscripts and they read a manuscript that said, come and see the come and see the and see is not in there. It just says come. So they assume it's John. So in other words, Hey John, come here. I want to show you something. John's already there. So it's not likely John other argue that it's Christ. You go Christ. He's in the throne room. Why does he got to go anywhere? What they're trying to argue is that throughout Revelation, you have creation calling out and say, come, set everything right. God, with everything that you do, please come and heal us. Those that cry out under the altar, how long will it be until you come? And they would shout out over and over, oh, Jesus, please come. Eh, Sounds valid. I still think he's talking to the horse guys. He says, come. All of a sudden, horses ride out. Great. He's calling out. What is significant about that, and one thing that you must wrestle with all day today, is that the lamb is allowing them to ride. The lamb is calling them out. What do you do with that? Do you understand the implications of that? Do you understand that we live in a world where God is in charge and bad things still happen? Everybody wrestling with those? These are things that we must spin in our minds. Oh, God is not evil. But as you watch, he has control and sovereignty over the world, and yet you're beginning to see things happen that you don't agree with. What do we do with that? These are things that we wrestle with. Now, it says, I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come, and I looked, and there before me was what color? White, a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Okay, everything hinges on who this guy is, right? If we're going to read the other horsemen, who is this guy? So we now got riding on the white pony guy, okay? He comes out. He's got a couple interesting stuff. Couple, he's got a bow. He was given a bow. No mention of arrows. Did you see that? Now, you don't know if that's just symbolic of saying... Well, he's going to lead conquest, but he's not going to do it in a violent way. He doesn't even have any arrows in his bow. That's what a lot of commentators say. Or is it merely supposed to be assumed? If you've got a bow, it's stupid not to have arrows, so you've got to have arrows somewhere. All right? He's got a bow, and he was given a what? A crown. Okay, that's an authority. That word in Greek is stephanos, the victor's wreath. 
So he's given a crown, he has a bow, and he comes riding out, and he's a conqueror bent on conquest. Who's that guy? Three choices. You ready? First one, it's Jesus. Jesus, riding out on a white horse. Why would they ever believe that? Keep your finger there and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Verse 11. Revelation 19:11 Is this rider Jesus? After all, white in Revelation is typical of what? Righteousness. Whenever you see the white robes and you see the white this, white stone, all these different things that are white, what do they always mean? Purity and righteousness. Ooh, that's a good argument. In Mark 13:10 Jesus said that the gospel would be proclaimed into all the earth before the end would happen. Is this a symbol of a victorious gospel echoing out? Is this Christ being victorious, moving out before the end comes? Is it the same writer as in chapter 19? I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a what kind of horse? A white horse. Whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. So who's that clearly? Jesus Christ. The armies of heaven were following him riding on what kind of horses? White horses. And dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Pretty amazing, huh? So is it that guy? Because that's the argument. This is the most traditional argument. As a matter of fact, all the way back to the late second century, this was the big guess. Well, it's Jesus. He's on a white horse. Of course it's him. Are you sure? Second option. The Antichrist. Now, Christ and Antichrist are only separated by an anti in their names. But I think the anti is significant. Yeah? Is this the Antichrist? You go, Antichrist? What are you talking about? The guy's on a white horse. Ah, turn with me to Second Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's in the New Testament, it's page 838. This will be our last kind of jump to passage today. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, page 838. It's right before Timothy, if you hit the Timothys, you still got to go back left. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of the Antichrist, is this. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. With every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion. So they will believe the lie and so that they will all be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. What do you know about a counterfeit? It looks an awful lot like what? The original. Is this the Antichrist? 
We have Christ riding on a white horse, but what would you expect the Antichrist to ride out on? A white horse. Yeah? As a matter of fact, the more you match up Revelation 19 and Revelation 6, they're clearly not the same guy. Why? Well, one guy has a sword coming out of his mouth. The other guy's got a bow with no arrows. Totally different. Then you go, well, they both have crowns. No, that's incorrect. One has a victor's wreath crown, which is Stephanos. Jesus has many diadema, which means the crown of a ruler. Totally different crown. One is merely bent on conquest and causing death and ravaging of people for apparently no reason but gain. Whereas when Jesus rides out, it's righteous retribution. Wow, they are different. So is it Christ? Is it the Antichrist? This writer is given a crown. Why does Jesus need to be given a crown? He already has the crown. He's already sitting on the throne. Why in the world would he do that? That doesn't make sense. All right, so we have two options colliding with each other. The third option is this. Is this merely the spirit of conquest? Meaning we're about to find out that one of the horsemen is death, right? Well, death isn't a real guy. It's not like Bob, also known as death. There's not a real guy known as death. It's a concept. It's the idea of anthropomorphism. It's the idea that, oh, I got this great concept. Oh, look, he looks like the Grim Reaper. He's got a big sickle in his hand, that kind of thing, right? So he's a concept. So why not be consistent? Why not say this is not a literal person? This is not Christ, not the Antichrist. This is merely the spirit of conquest by which man tried to get over on each other. It's the idea of war. It's the idea that everyone wants to rule. And maybe it's when they're fighting against doing it their own way and resisting the lamb. Or maybe it's a conquest of the spirit of what the Antichrist is going to be involved in. Maybe it's just a concept. What do you guys think? Anybody got anyone? It's tough. That's why this whole thing is hard, because they all have legitimate things. I'm going to suggest to you that even though the spirit of conquest has a lot of validity... I'm going to stand on the Antichrist. I think it fits the context the best, although I'm not super confident. But I think it fits the context the best. I'm really not seeing this as Jesus. That is one that I'm going to have a hard time with. All right? So if this first horseman that rides out is the Antichrist, what is in his hand? As I said before, we know from Daniel... When we read the ancient prophet Daniel, he talks a lot about this Antichrist guy becoming a world leader by political intrigue and everybody loves him and he's going to be this great world savior. He's going to make a pact with Israel and halfway through he's going to break that pact and all of a sudden things are going to get ugly. He's going to institute the mark of the beast and we have all that information, right? Well... If that's possible, maybe they're right. Maybe the commentators are right. They had a bow without arrows. First, it starts out really, really peaceful. But by the next rider, he's given a sword. Maybe all these horsemen echo out what the Antichrist will do. He will be conquest. He will be war and bloodshed. He will be famine. He will cause all these things. That's the position that I'm going to take and the way that we're going to move forward. Let's take a look at what else it has to say. It says this, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, now who's the second living creature? First guy was the lion. The lion represents what of the beasts? 
king of the beasts, and he talked about conquering. We now have a king talking about conquering. What's the second one? The oxen. Oxen are known for two things in Scripture. Strength and sacrifice. Now we have the sacrificial animal speaking of something else. I heard the lamb, the lamb open the second seal and I heard the second living creature say, come and another horse came out, a fiery what? Red one, fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. A couple interesting things about that. First of all, did you all realize that Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, saw two visions of horses that were multicolored? Anybody realize that, that this is not brand new? This idea of all these colored horses running about, Zechariah saw it twice. First time they were just riding out. Second time they were pulling chariots. In that instance, they talked about the activity of God in the world. All right. Now we have the oxen speaking of this fiery red horse, and they were given the power to what? Have men slay each other, take the peace from the world. That word for slay is not the normal word that is used for dying in battle. It's the word slaughter. So now you have men slaughtering each other with a sword. The sword in Greek, there's two different kinds of swords that are referred to in Scripture. One is a machaira. A machaira is a short sword that assassins use, that men use in close battle. That is this word. So now he is given the ability to be up close and have internal strife and begin to slay each other. Not only will there be conquest of war on the outside, perhaps there will be internal struggle on the inside. Given power... A large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature. What's his face look like? A man. And you're going to go, well, how does that fit into this? Well, this is all about the economy. Pretty interesting tie-in. Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Scales like on a dragon? Like on a snake? What are we talking about? No, we're talking about measuring scales, yeah? The kind of old school, you put a little bit of weight on this side, it lifts that one down. That's what we're talking about. He's carrying these scales in his hand as he rides out. In the Old Testament, whenever you saw the scales, or it was mentioned, that meant scarcity. That meant famine. That meant there was going to be a limiting of food. There was not enough for everything. So you had to weigh it out. We now have famine before us. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say. Whose voice is that? Was it where John just went, he's trying to write and the, this voice comes out. Wait, which one of you said that? I have no idea. Is that what he meant? No, remember that there's a throne in the middle and that the living creatures are around it. So what voice comes from the midst of them? But the lamb. The lamb then calls out this. A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, when I read this, you guys reading through it, I have no idea what that meant. I was like, eh, I don't, I'm not a big barley guy. I don't really know what we're talking about, right? So you do some research. All of a sudden it becomes pretty obvious. Those all four, barley, wheat, oil, and wine, were all the four staples or four staples of their everyday food. The oil would be used to cook. The wine would be used to drink because the water was poor. And these are all normal things. These are not luxuries. A lot of commentators make a big deal about the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. That's, you're reading too much into it. I'm not seeing it. 
But in there, we do have a couple indicators. First of all, the word there, when he says a day's wages is a denarius. A denarius is a Roman silver coin, and you get one a day. So if you worked all day long, you would get one coin. With that coin, you could buy either a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. And you go, what's the difference? Barley is less nutritious, and it's not very helpful to your body. A lot of times it's given to animals. So you go, you can either buy the good stuff, and you can buy one quart, or you can buy three quarts of the bad stuff. What's the problem with all of this? If you work all day, how much does a man consume in a day? One quarter of wheat, or three quarts of barley. Now, he would only eat one quart of barley, but it's less nutritious. So what are we, what are we reading? You work all day, and all you can do is feed who? Yourself. What if you have a family? They get no food. In order to feed your family, you have to go down a notch into the less nutritious food and you give your family stuff that is fit for animals. That's the famine. But do not harm the oil and the wine. It's very possible that that is speaking to a limitation. If a famine sweeps across the land, let's say it's a literal famine. It would wipe out the wheat and barley harvest. It would burn it right across the top. But the vineyards have deep roots. The olive trees have deep roots. And so those are not burned up immediately. They can survive if the famine doesn't last too long. So there's a limitation. Who's in charge? The lamb is in charge at all times. We finish with this. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature. And what's he? The eagle guy, right? Maybe he's got a bird's eye view. Maybe he's got a big picture look. Seems to be. Come, I looked and there before me was a pale horse. What's pale? What color is pale? Gray? The word translated in Greek means whitish green or yellowish green. And you go, what? What does that have to do with it? It is used for vegetation that is going bad. Or it's used for somebody that has been scared out of their wits. Why? Have you ever said he's white as a... White as a ghost, white as a sheet, the color drains from their face. Terror or the leprous color. When you begin to watch the lifeblood drain out of a body, it goes green. And it's the color of death. So it only makes sense that who's riding on it? But death. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. So now Hades is the place of the dead. So we have the death that causes it. And then you got to go to the Hades, the location. Now they're being personified. So does Hades have his own horse or is he just like hanging on to the tail? What's he doing? Right. How's he going along? Right. Is it kind of like last night a guy came up to me and he goes, maybe it's like dumb and dumber where he's just hanging on to him in the back. Right. How in the world are they moving on together? A lot of the commentators said what it appears to be is almost like the grave digger. That now you have the horse riding out and there goes Hades below gathering up the corpses as death rides through. The idea is that you begin to picture this in your mind. That as John begins to see these horses ride one after another going out and causing devastation, it must have melted his heart. And all the early readers would have been shocked at what they saw. And here we have death. And Hades, they were given power over a fourth of the earth. If there's six billion people in the world, 1.5 billion people die. By what means? 
to kill by sword, famine, plague, and the wild beasts of the earth. Those are the same four accounts that were given to the prophet Ezekiel. Do you understand that in Revelation, these are tying into all the other parts of the Bible? The more we know our Old Testament, the more we understand this. The more we know the New Testament, the more we understand this. So now we have the four horsemen. What do we do with it? Here's my challenges as we leave. Number one, the lamb is on the throne, period. Number two, God is so much bigger than you'd ever imagine. We always want nice God unless it has to do with our enemies. Then we want mean God. But you are serving a God that is scary. You are serving a God who will use all sorts of things to accomplish his purposes. As a matter of fact, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, all these leaders are merely pawns in the hands of God. And he will move them on a chessboard to accomplish what he wants. They are never in charge. Our king is in charge. We know him as dad. And our dad may look at us and smile and play. But when he turns towards his enemies, they begin to run away. Yeah? We serve a ferocious, warlike God who as gentle as he is when he plays with the infants, he is equally as strong. When you pray, I want you to remember what God you serve. When you worship, I want you to blow out your boundaries and begin to praise Him for who He is, not who you want Him to be. The more we read in this book, we could get caught up in the academic stuff or we could keep seeing our Lord revealed over and over and over in a brand new way. Do you understand how this applies to your life? Do you get it? All this is not just stories about the future. Yes, it may come in our day. It's very possible. And yes, I must equip you so that we are not led astray. Because if indeed an Antichrist comes into our lifetime, he will lead many astray. I don't want any of those to be us. We must know our king. We must know the real deal so that we would know a counterfeit when we see one. Right? But beyond that, are you seeing Jesus? Are you seeing him being revealed? Are you realizing that the end is in God's hands and you need to understand where you are with the Lord today? Are you seeing that? These are the things that are important. Please make it personal. Please make it applicable. This is not just facts. This is transformation. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we got a chance to walk into your word. And Lord, even though so much of it is still a mystery to us, we do see you differently. We do see you a little bit more rightly. The Jesus, I wonder how much, Father, in my world of fear, that I don't see you as being the mighty God that you are. I wonder sometimes, Lord, in the way that I play with the evil, I wonder if I don't see how serious it is to you. I pray that today that we would come to your throne rightly and submit to your leadership today.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.